Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Hey there, Dan Benjamin. How's everything going? Well, you know, pretty darn good, I guess. You know, I've got a little bit of back problem, but uh, oh, wait, 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 whoa, 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 what's going on? Well, you know, I kind of got, I stressed it a little bit. I, uh, I was, you know, moving some rocks, and then I went and stayed in a, I was sleeping in a bed that was too soft, and then. I was moving, moving some boxes, heavy boxes, boxes of books, and just Are you I, moving, you know, getting getting settled into your house now, or yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, mo- moving a lot of stuff in, and um, and all of those things. You know, when I I I stressed it when I was moving rocks, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, I followed up by doing some some heavy raking. You know, like there's light raking and there's heavy raking. Mm-hmm. I was doing some heavy raking and I could feel that, oh, I've got, I've given myself a little bit of an ache and then the, the too soft bed made me ache and then the moving boxes and I could, when I started moving boxes, I was like, your back already aches, so mm. be careful. Yeah. And I was careful, but I moved a lot of boxes and so I didn't give the ache a chance to, and now it hurts and so I, you know, my sister swears by Epsom baths. Mm-hmm taken I've taken one of those and maybe two of them and and um then Do you think it's strained or is it just is it just uh, injured or what what's that Well it doesn't feel you know it doesn't feel like a disc or anything it just feels like a like a pulled mm. But you know I've been laying on a heating pad for the oh, last couple of days Well that's the problem right there Oh I mean, is that right heating yeah, pads are bad Yeah it's very you know, well, I mean I mean let, let me qualify this John I'm okay. you know we've talked about my back issues uh, or prior back issues here sure. on the show. I, uh, the guy, you know, the guy that chronicles everything that we, you've ever said or done, the cool guy. Uh, sure, sure, sure. He can, he can tell us where, where, where I talked about that. And I think it was in relation to the time when your daughter jumped on need on your back. This is a long time ago, but yeah, yeah. That was when I, uh, that was when I slipped my disc. Right. And, uh, and I think I talked about my story back then. I don't want to repeat it, but the one thing that all of the different back doctors that I said was, is although a heating pad feels good. Yeah. And it can, it can, it does have its uses and it can be good for increasing circulation and things like that. Typically. And again, as you know, I am not a physician. Uh, right. So that said, um, it, um, the advice that I was always given from physicians is you want to do cold, not hot. And you would think, well, wait, cold doesn't feel good. The hot feels really good. And like your muscles are tight and the hot loosens it up. And that may be true, but what you actually are trying to do in the acute stage, the early stage of a back injury or any kind of injury is you're trying to reduce inflammation. You're trying to reduce the potential swelling. Even if it's swelling, you can't necessarily see. It could be micro swelling, you know, so... Your goal is to reduce the inflammation, and the best way to do that is with ice. And the ice also has a numbing effect, so it will reduce the pain as well. And so by doing this, you want to do it 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off. You don't want to lay there on the ice. You don't want to fall asleep on the ice. You don't want to have ice on there for hours. 15 to 20 minutes on, 15 minutes off, um, as much as you need to throughout the course of the day, and then at a later point, there are applications where heat is good. But generally speaking, my doctors have told me to always avoid heat 
in general for that kind of thing. I'm sure, oh, you know, I don't need emails from other people, but my thinking is for you, if you're still experiencing pain and that kind of thing, try the ice 15 on 15 off and see if that doesn't give you some more relief because what your goal is now, like I said, is that you want to reduce the inflammation. You want to make it so that whatever swelling is going on in there goes away. Your muscles will relax even though it doesn't feel as good. But I'll tell you nothing. I used to do the heat all the time, like you're talking about. And then my doctor was so angry when she found out that I was, she's like, you can't, you can't do that. You can't, that's the exact opposite of what you want to be doing. I'm like, but it feels good. She's like, yeah, it feels good, but it makes it worse. So (laughs) maybe, maybe try some ice. All right. Well, uh, Roger, Roger. I mean, it's not like Um, you uh, haven't like done damage to yourself, but you haven't necessarily helped either. Yeah. 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 Well, and the, and the, you know, the, the, the back injury is uh, mild and ongoing. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, but, you know, soon to be, you know, I like a stiff mattress. I like a really, really stiff mattress. My dad used to put a board, right? He used to put a wooden board in there. Yeah. Mine he put did a that piece too. Of plywood. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the thinking was, but they all used to do that back then. Yeah. Yeah. Piece of plywood between the box spring and the mattress. And, um, I've got these, uh, lovely Casper mattresses because mm-hmm. they've, uh, they've been so generous and, and they're very, very firm. I find. So, uh, <clears throat> I can't wait to get back to my, my good old, my good old bed. Mm-hmm. That's going to help me a lot. Yeah. Because you've been staying in, um, your, uh, your, your lady, your lady friend's house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and now you're going into your own. Do you plan on staying in your own, like going forward? Will you be in there? Like, um, like, will that be your main house and then and then you'll uh, visit the other one or will you still stay over the other one what do you, what do you think <clears throat> well dan it's uh i mean that really is the it's the million dollar question just exactly how is this rollout going to happen because right. i could uh i could be 100% completely living in my new house it's not done mm. there's tons and tons of work to do there would be Constant work going on, always a ladder in the living room type of thing. Mm. You know, there's carpet going to be installed in the next couple of weeks in a couple of rooms. But as far as like, are the bathrooms ready? Yes. Have mm. I moved uh, enough in in terms of like, is there a bed in the in the master bedroom? Yes. Is there? Does my daughter have a bed? Yes. Couch in the living room. And so, if these were normal circumstances and I were a normal person who, uh, who really, really wanted to get started living in their new house. Um, I could for the last week and a half, two weeks, I could, uh, have been staying there every night, Mm -hmm. but it's been very, uh, it's been very difficult because my, uh, my little family here at the house one mile away is reluctant for me to go and they're not incentivizing it for a long time. It felt like when my house was ready, my little family here would incentivize it by saying, why don't you get out and go live at your house now? Yeah. My daughter many, many times over the last year has said, I can't wait for you to move into your house because Meaning you because will, she could go hang out or because you would be you would have space both things she okay. would 
she is really excited about having a second bedroom, as mm. you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Any any daughter would. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, in the second bedroom, she'll be able to correct all the decorating mistakes that she made in the first bedroom. bedroom. <laughs> yes. And in the second bedroom, she can use all purple. Whereas in the first bedroom, her favorite color wasn't purple yet. And so some decisions were made that can't be unmade. But also, you know, she tends to be a little brusque, a little, you know, brutally candid. And what she wants is uninterrupted mom time because her mother is more lenient and Mm. they will curl up on the couch and watch Clone Wars. Whereas dad is always saying, why don't we go hit a baseball or, you know, like I'm just a pain in the neck to her a lot of the time. Sure. And so a combination of those two factors, um, she's excited. Well, she's expressed this excitement, but in the last couple of weeks when the, um, when the move became more and more real, she started to pull back a little bit on that enthusiasm for me to go and is much more now like, yeah, I feel the two of them fretting, but more important even than that is that um, Dan, I never, ever, ever used to want other people around, and I did not, you know, I'm somebody that that fights habit. I didn't have any habits. I didn't ever eat a meal at the same time. I didn't really ever do anything from one day to the next. My understanding, John, is that if if you ate a dinner at 7 p.m. on Tuesday and dinner was ready at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, you would just sit there in front of it for a good 10, 15 minutes, letting it get cold so that you wouldn't be eating it at the same time. Well, I, the thing is that, that it would be way further upstream that those decisions would be made because if I were sitting and looking at the ingredients of a dinner at the same time, I would almost certainly, not intentionally, but but perhaps subconsciously, Get distracted mm. by some kind of BB stacking exercise. So your brain would protect itself from forming a habit. Perhaps, perhaps. Like subconscious, like a subconscious motivation. I don't, there aren't enough hours in the day that it makes sense that someone would never eat dinner at the same time unless there was something happening in his brain. But here at this house for the last year, I have, we still don't eat dinner at the exact same time every day, but there is at least a dinner. And that's the other thing. Living alone, there were many times where there wasn't ever a dinner. Mm. There was not even any food that day because I was uh, I was an untreated bipolar person. And sometimes right. there, I would forget to eat. And sometimes all I would do in a day was eat. And that's not really possible to, it's, it's a lot harder to live that way with other people around, especially a child. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <clears throat> the incentive, and I'm and I'm talking about incentive, and I think about incentive a lot in my interactions with other people, because I think a lot of people in the world, uh, a, a lot of their habits and interactions with other people are foregone conclusions, which is to say that. You know, they, they graduate from college and they start a job and there doesn't appear to be a third option. You know, you graduate from college and you get a job. Your other option is graduate from college and 
either look for a job and not find one, Mm -hmm. or I don't know, the rare kid that moves back in with their parents and plays video games, or the rich kid that goes uh, does a grand tour of Europe. But there's not there's not the option for most people of um, don't graduate from college and start a band, right? That's a that's a rarer. And I think it's true in relationships too, particularly if you're married. Marriage comes with it so many sort of built-in features. Mm. And some of them seem like features, but they're really bugs. But you don't have to think about it, right? You don't have to. And I think this is where a lot of marriages go wrong. They People don't communicate with each other because they assume that the marriage itself will take care of it. That the uh, conditions of the marriage are... Mm are, um, are so clear, so, uh, well established these ruts that there couldn't be any misunderstanding. And of course there's always misunderstanding mm-hmm. about you know, what the conditions even mean, what the, you know, what, what those words even mean. Um, but a lot of my interactions with people romantic and otherwise aren't governed by, <clears throat> um, laws of uh, really of any kind or habits other than mutual interest and is this better than not and does this seem fruitful and i'm not somebody that thinks about the future this has been a lifelong quality i don't really think about the future i don't plan for the future until just recently when i realized i was 52 and and there is some necessity in planning for the future mm-hmm. unless I want to be 92 years old and still talking to you once a week about my personal problems, which that will be hilarious when you're 90, 92 mm-hmm. and you're talking to someone else who's very old mm-hmm. and you're like, I just can't seem to get my, I can't get my girlfriend to, Give me any space. You know, that's just, that's going to be hilarious if that mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. But it would be nice to be, you know, to get to a certain age and not have to, uh, not have to hustle. But, but the thing about not thinking about the future, not planning for it and just not imagining it, you know, I don't spend a lot of time. I talk about, I think about the past all the time and I think about the present, but even the immediate future, even later today, I only have the very vaguest sketch of how it's going to go, what I'm going to do, where I'm going to be. And so it, w- what ends up happening is that I think about relationship decisions. I think about, uh, like past relationship decisions or no, no, no present ones and future ones. Mm-hmm. I think about them often in terms of incentive, like we have a choice. Here we are. We have a choice. Can we go, we go out tonight or do we not? Do we, do we choose to have a fight instead of watching TV? What are we fighting about? Are we fighting about what, you know, what's the, what's the project today and what are the incentives? Because I think as someone who doesn't, who's never feared being alone. And you know, I, if, if I have a superpower, it is that I don't get bored. Mm-hmm. Um, everything in addition to being alone and just entertaining myself with my imagination, 
there has to be a compelling reason to do it, right? And 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 it doesn't have to be an incredibly compelling because sitting and entertaining myself with my imagination isn't like the end all be all right up. I, I like to dance. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to eat food that somebody else made. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not hard to get me in motion, but it has to be better than my baseline, which is fine. And so this is, this creates problems because a lot of people do things as part of their daily, weekly routine that they have no incentive to do. It's not fun. It's not what they want. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times it is that characterizes their entire relationship. I don't really want to be in this relationship, but I'm in it. I signed a contract or we own a house or we have kids or we, you know, or this is what's expected. Or if I, you know, if I, if I broke off this relationship, my, my family and my culture and my church and my town would turn against me or, or whatever, or, or it never occurred to me to stop being in this relationship because I never thought about it. Um, and so a question of like, what's my incentive to do anything to, to move in any direction? It doesn't come up as often, I think. For a lot of people, because the routine and the expectations paper over the question of like, why would I do this? So I'm a lot closer to, I'm, a, I'm on the bleeding edge a lot of times of needing really to ask and answer that question. Why would I do this? Is this better than not doing it? And so I... I phrase that question to myself a lot and, uh, and it's true in, it, it becomes kind of a problem in romantic relationships because romantic relationships have a lot of busy work and a lot of stuff that just, you know, like, I don't know, um, romantic relationships have, have difficulty in them that I think a lot of people endure because they're thinking about the future and they want a relationship in the future. They know they do. They don't want to be alone. They want love. They want hugs and kisses. They want a partner. They want somebody sitting there when they get home or, or they want someone to sit and wait for. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't, you don't have that need. You don't feel that. I never have. And I, and it's just kind of, I don't, I cannot tell you whether it's, uh, whether it's nature or nurture. I do know that, um, you know, both my grandfathers, uh, lived alone when they could. And my, my father's mother raised her children by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother's mother died at a young age. So, And my mother lives alone and my father lived alone. And when my mother and father divorced in 1971, neither got remarried and both were, you know, they, I mean, I can count my mother's boyfriend, boyfriends on one hand from 1971 to the present. Mm -hmm. And my dad's, uh, my dad's girlfriends that we knew about, I can count on three fingers. Um, I think he had, he had relationships that we didn't know about, but that in and of itself is kind of telling. 
So it's a family tradition <laughs> in a way. <laughs> right? you know, my sure. sister never married and, and is, is uh, 50 now and kind of not, not in a relationship and seems unburdened by it. So I think a lot of people don't, don't look for incentives, short-term incentives, because they're picturing long-term incentives. And, and ultimately, the longest-term incentive is, I don't want to be alone. And so the difficulty I'm having with this person, the lack of agreement, the uh, negotiations, the bickering or whatever, it's all going to work out in the long run because I can see in, in the hazy distance I can picture a time when we'll have figured all this out because how hard can it be? And we'll get to, we'll get to our, our paradise. And then it will just be like the final scene in raising Arizona where, (laughs) right. The dream, the dream of the future sequence. Yeah. The dream of the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is a big part of a lot of people's lives. The, the dream of the future sequence. Yeah. Because a lot of the problems that you feel like we're having right now, but are not going to have in our dream of the future are not problems that go away. They aren't simple solutions. They don't, marriage doesn't solve them. Um, time doesn't solve them. And I, I, and I, <clears throat> I learned that lesson with my, with my, uh, mental illness, you know, my chronic depression, my neuro atypicality. Yeah. Right that I thought all through my twenties and thirties that it couldn't possibly not cure itself. Mm. I think a lot of people feel this about their alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, well I drank like that in my twenties, but I can't possibly keep drinking like that in my forties. And then they're in there, then they're 39 and a half and they're like, wow, it's only gotten worse, but it can't possibly keep getting worse. And and it does. But so the lack of that, any desire, any version of that, um, that dream of the future in me. And it's not that I have one and I'm pressing it down. I just never had one, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's part of, it's part of why I was, why I spent so many years just kind of living, just going where the day took me. And I never characterized it as like living in the moment because I spend a lot of time living in the past. Um, so I'm not some, I'm not some Zen, uh, hippity hop who just goes from lily pad to lily pad and has no, <laughs> has no sadness. You know, I, I spend a lot of time brooding and, and, um, in dark places, hmm. but it's, but I don't like one thing I never do future fuck myself. I never look at a situation and go, this isn't going to work. I mean, I definitely say like, um, this song is garbage and I'm going to stop working on it. <laughs> Uh, you know, I like, I stop myself often, but in the moment, not really saying like, and, and it happens in relationships a lot where people make, make a presumption that they can see into the future. And if, if, um, and people say this all the time, like, well, you're going to do this if, if I don't do that, or if I, if we don't establish this now, then you're going to do this. And I'm like, you have no idea what I'm going to do. And that kind of uh, desire to, or that confidence that you can predict what is going to happen. Like I don't have, but that, so, so, so those questions of like, well, why would I, 
I mean, I, I understand like, hey, I want you to, to go with me to my sister's wedding. It's like, of course, I don't want to. But I understand that that's a responsibility when you're in a relationship with somebody and that, you know, the incentive and maybe I, maybe I find an incentive that I don't share, which is like, yeah, I'll go see your weird sister's freaking wedding, you know, like totally messed up wedding. <laughs> I want to do, I want to do this because this is, this is better than television. I wouldn't say that. Um, and you know, and I would have to, I would have to care about someone very little to not try to accommodate all of their, um, all of their needs that they, that they're generous enough to share with me. Right. It's those situations where it's like, we're in a relationship. I really like you, but we fight constantly and you don't seem to share my view of the world. And I don't have very much confidence that we can bridge the gap. It seems like we're on a path to fight all the time. And I've seen enough, I've seen it happen enough and I've worked hard to, to, uh, to come up with, you know, strategies and it, and it just, it seems like fighting all the time is our, is our baseline. And so what's my incentive to keep going in this relationship? Right. And it basically comes down to, I really like aspects of our relationship does that and and it sounds cold but it's a thing that it's very clear to me that you shouldn't do you shouldn't you shouldn't click in or lock into a lasting pattern that you just know isn't better than nothing And so here I am sitting here in this house with this, with my, my home finally not, not done or anywhere close to done, but capable of sustaining life. <laughs> okay. I could, I could get done here. I could walk over to my house. I have internet installed. Most of the lights work. Mm -hmm. There are beds and the, and the furniture that is necessary. We would like to say thank you very much to feels. If you ever experience stress or if you have anxiety, chronic pain, trouble sleeping at least once a week, guess what? Like that's everybody, right? All of us have that. But I know from my own experience, you can have more than one of these things at the same time. And I was searching for really anything that would help. And that's when I discovered feels feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Okay. So it naturally helps you reduce stress, anxiety, pain, sleeplessness. Um, it's really helped me. I've been using different CBDs for a while until I found feels. And then I switched to feels completely because I know it's really good. They test everything. You know exactly what you're getting. Uh, you're basically getting the best quality, in my opinion, CBD out there, um, it's really easy to take you to you take a few drops and you put it under your tongue and you'll feel the difference within just a few minutes. And the thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everybody's dose is different. So you're going to want to experiment over the course of like a week or so. You might need to take more or less depending on the effects that you're after. What's really cool is feels also has what they, what they call a CBD flight. 
where they actually send you a couple little samples of different strengths of CBD so that you can figure out which one works. Or you can just buy uh, some and, and experiment with it yourself. You can also get real human support if you're new to CBD they have a free CBD hotline that'll help guide your personal experience with people who really understand this and understand all the challenges that we face and what we might want to fix. It's really, really great. And they're really helpful. Again, this is like very natural. There's no high, there's no hangover, there's no addiction. Join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels has me feeling my best every day. It'll help you too, I think. Become a member. All you have to do is go to Feels, F-E-A-L-S, feels.com slash roadwork, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. And again, that's Feels, F-E-A-L-S, feels.com slash roadwork. Become a member, 50% automatically taken off your first order with shipping. And uh, we sure do appreciate having Feels here, and hopefully you'll appreciate it as much as I do. Thanks very much to Feels for making this show possible. But I don't feel the incredible incentive mm -hmm. to be alone. I feel rather much more incentive to kind of let it ride. Mm -hmm. And the and this the, is a, like, and this is a big difference for you, a big change. Well, it it's it's a, it's been a long time. But the thing is that that letting it ride is a is a state. Um, like it's a Heisenberg state, hmm. right? Because it isn't, and and a lot of my life has been characterized by a kind of Heisenberg, Heisenbergian um, lack of interest in declaring whether I'm a particle or a wave. Hmm. And as long as I don't declare it, it's not a situation where... Um, where the the act of someone else viewing it establishes it. Right. The, when other people look at me, they think they see either a particle or a wave, mm. but that doesn't that doesn't fundamentally establish my nature. I see. It's only when I uh, when I am the observer that my that my nature coalesces, mm -hmm. and so. I'm in, I'm in that state where I've yet to, I've yet to be observed by the, by the grand observer. And I think that, you know, my family here is really observing me. And I think they know also that they can't just observe me into being, but they do, they, they, they do want me to become a particle. And I have so often been a particle in the last year that it feels like it's that the nature is is established, and the the thing is that it that it's not not necessarily. But a month from now, when the house is utterly inhabitable, not just capable of sustaining life, but like it's all there. And the question becomes, do you now rent out your furnished home to Alaska Airlines to uh, be a retreat for 
high ranking pilots, you know, like once the house is done, it will be a nice place. It has an, an acre of ravine that I've been gradually transforming into. It's not quite a park like setting yet, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's an, it's interesting to look at and the house will be fun. You know, I, it finally has fun tile and it has a fun vintage vibe and, and it's a manageable size. Mm-hmm. Do I, is there a scenario where in observing myself, I would say rather than move into this house, which you've, which you've purpose built for yourself, there's a, there's a room in the basement next to the bomb shelter, which is already soundproofed by its very construction to be a recording studio where you have all the gear, you have it all in mind where you're going to go down there and really start digging into this back catalog of music that you haven't had a basement. And the thing is that my musical interior life always needed a basement and the farm didn't have a basement and it was hard just just very hard for me to ever get comfortable playing loud music in an above ground room i can't put it another way music always felt to me like a thing that you played in the deepest room in the house uh-huh. with all the doors locked <laughs> that's pretty cool and so and that's all and, and that's been true of every of every band practice space I've ever had. They were all made of cinder block. They all, you know, had at most a window somewhere that you could reach eventually, you know, like the, the long winters practice space had zero windows, but you could go through two doors and be outside. And that was true of the bun family players. Um, and the Western state hurricanes practice space, there was one window that didn't open and you had to go through two doors to get outside and they were all made of cement. So now I have a house that has that feature. Exactly. A room made of cement in the, in the deepest corner. And I'm so excited to get in there and set up my equipment and be able to be loud and be able to have it, you know, to leave the microphones up. And not have that room also have to function as a daytime room. Right. So am I really going to coalesce into a particle that sleeps in the spare bedroom of um, (laughs) my daughter's mother's house where every time I kick off my shoes in the living room, somebody goes, your shoes are in the living room. At, at, with a with a house with a recording studio in the basement that's a mile away, no, I I'm not going to do that. That that would be, uh, that would be science fiction. And it isn't really possible, I don't think, for me to move in over there and continue to continue to walk over here every day and have dinner at the same time and watch an hour of episodic television and then go home. It, it might be the pattern for a while because, because it will be something that it feels very familiar. Right. But eventually, and probably soon a day will come where I will say, 
oh, it's pizza night. Well, you guys have fun. And partly it's going to be the end of the quarantine where these two girls here will have more opportunity to go do things. They'll have the opportunity to go have dinner with friends. They'll have the opportunity to go to the movies. And there will be, I mean, part of what has has made me such a particle over the last year is just that we're, we all have become that, right? No one, yeah, everyone, no one is at liberty. But in this moment, in this, in this, you know, intermediate time and place, I don't feel a ton of incentive to, um, you know, to fill up the refrigerator over there with mustard mm-hmm. and then say, oh, well, you guys, it's Taco Tuesday or whatever. You guys have fun. I'm just going to sit here in this house by myself and eat a frozen pizza on the floor because I don't have a dining room. And, and not looking very far into the future or being able to tell it, I cannot tell you what the, what the other side of this borderland is. Mm. I think it will be a gradual transition. It already feels much more graduated than I expected. And, you know, I had a good friend say, look, if you wanted to, because I've been saying for you know, months and months. Well, when I'm living in my house, X will happen. Right. When I'm living in my house, Y will happen. And there are, there are people in my life who are like kind of looking at their watch. Like when is Y going to happen again? Because mm. you've been talking about it for a long time. And I'm like, when I move into my house, Y is going to happen. And someone said to me the other day, like, if you wanted Y to happen, you could have moved into your house. And so I'm beginning to doubt that why is going to happen. And that's when I say like, well, my incentive to make why happen isn't great enough to overpower the um, inertia of or the, you know, the entropy, uh, entropy is the wrong word, but it's not enough to, it's not enough to turn my, um, my potential energy into kinetic energy. Mm. And it's not that I don't expect why to happen. It's not that I don't even want why to happen, but why isn't a sufficient, like the idea of why happening is not a sufficient, uh, like kinetic energy to get me in motion. And that's a, and I think that's troublesome for people who, well, certainly for people who want why to happen, but also, uh, to feel like it's, it's troubling to people that I'm, that I, I guess am able to compartmentalize decisions at, at such a granular level. Because it often feels to them like, well, look, the, you know, the whole thing hangs in the balance. 
whether why happens or not. And I'm like, I don't think it does. I think why is just a thing. It's just its own thing. And you can make decisions around it, whether why is a particle or a wave. Um, it doesn't need to be determined for you to, to work out the physics of whatever, you know, whatever your, your future dream state is. So I'm, I'm absolutely right now, um, maybe as between worlds, as between realities, as I've, as I've been in a very long time. And, and I think in the past when I was between realities like this, there were no clear boundaries on either side. It was like, it was truly, um, well, I might walk out of the house today and meet the woman I'm going to marry, or I might w walk out of the house today and not sleep again until I'm in Budapest. <laughs> and what is it now? Well, now it's like, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that tonight I intend to stay the night at my new house. Mm -hmm. And, but I have not announced that yet. And you're saying this uh, hypothetically, not actually tonight. I think tonight. Oh, actually, actually tonight. tonight. The real tonight. Mm -hmm. Like I have spent the night there a couple of nights. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but, but those couple of nights did not immediately like light the fuse, set the move in motion. Mm-hmm. And I've been moving, but I've been moving out of a shipping container. Like my stuff was all in storage and now it was in a pod and the pod got delivered and I moved out of the pod and they came and got the pod. So now what I've got is a bunch of books in boxes marked books, mm -hmm. none of which I particularly need right now. Like my copy of the sun also rises can sit in that box <laughs> for a little while longer. Um, but when I like, there are books that I would sure like to have access to. And unfortunately they're all in boxes marked, you know, undifferentiated marked books. And I have in the process of pulling stuff out of those boxes, I have, I've put probably, eight full boxes and two garbage bags worth of stuff in a big, big corner of the garage called going to the thrift store. So I'm calling, which was always part of the plan, but none of that feels, uh, you know, none of that is burning with a white hot fire, right? None of that dislodges me. There's nothing in any of those boxes. And this is part of the materialism of all this, there's nothing in any of those boxes that having opened the box and the, and the ghosts pour out, have I said, oh, well, this is it. Now this box is open. I can't leave this. I can't leave this stuff and go one mile away to have, um, to have Indian food with my family. No, no, no. Now that this box is open, now that this box marked pink wingtips is open and I see what I've been missing, uh, which is to walk around the world in pink wing wingtips. 
none of that is a bit as is an incentive and and um and so the only incentives are that i want to return to a place where i have my uh where i have complete space and quietude and um and the 24 hour clock goes back to being a 28 hour clock which is how the clock really works for me and i can't have a 28 hour clock in a house with other people particularly when they are going to school and they have work there is no um there is no 28 hour oscillation but that's where my that's where my own nature is and what the sun is doing has never been less relevant to a person. Right. When the guitars are little maids all in a row and the podcast microphones are moved and, and at the ready, you know, when my job decamps and that's the other thing. I mean, the podcast table is if I don't if I don't stand there guarding it, it becomes a Lego table and then it becomes a craft table. Right. But the Legos stayed there and then it becomes an American Girl doll table, but the crafts and Legos also stayed there. So, you know, there's no room for anything. And my guitars are are pushed into a corner next to some calico critters and, uh, you know, and some kind of Barbie RV that if it were up to me, that Barbie RV would be deep in a landfill by now, but it's not op- up to me. Oh, and there's also a play playmobile castle. And, you know, this is just like, and I just have like two guitars that I'm allowed to kind of have here. So if, if I had a room where all this stuff had a place, that may be the thing where it's just like, well, I have to go to my house because that's where I work. And then, you know, by necessity, that's where I'll, where I be. But I've never experienced loneliness before. I've never felt it. Are the only times it? are you saying you're feeling that now? Well, I, I, th- that's the thing that it would be a future feeling maybe, I, or maybe, or definitely. Well, I felt loneliness as a child a lot because I was, uh, but my sister and I called it the empty feeling, mm-hmm. which was those times when you're laying in bed at night and you just feel that the, that the, um, that there is a bottomless chasm. And let me, let me I mean, ask you something. Let me ask you something. Cause we have talked and I'm, I'm sure the guy will, will know what, which episode we discussed loneliness and your last your the fact that you don't feel lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was when we were talking about love and long-term relationships and the fact that you had never been in love and also never felt loneliness. Um, well, I've never been in love. I mean, that's really hard to say. You exactly, said it though, but, but you said it. So I'm going back to what yeah, you said. Yeah, but I'm, I'm walking it back a little okay, bit. Walking it back a little bit. So, um, well, been in love. 
Oh, I've been in love, but okay. it's always been a nightmare. Okay. okay. I mean, so. I have fallen in love many times, but it has <laughs> never, ever, ever been anything short of a total nightmare. <laughs> okay. Well, in this conversation that we had where you were basically saying some of these things, um, one of the things that you said was that you don't, you're not either, you don't feel loneliness, but my takeaway from it is more, if you feel it, it's not troubling and it's not an unpleasant feeling to you if, oh, okay. if, and yeah. when you feel it. And what, what I'm, do you think that you might be feeling it now because you have become acclimated to having people around you because you kind of had no choice and, and uh, it's almost like a, um, a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing <laughs> that you're now so used to your, these people being with you that you, you feel that you need to somehow perpetuate that. Well, it's a, in some ways it's the opposite of Stockholm syndrome in that it's not that I have become inured to the noise that a child makes every minute of every day, especially my Frankenstein booted child who stomps around like she weighs a hundred pounds, but she sounds like she weighs 7,000 pounds mm. and she's a screamer and she's a yeller. Uh, and, um, and just the sounds of people around me that would have irritated me, that would have intruded and woken me up and, um, and just, you know, I'm sensitive to, my environment, the, the, the feeling that just like, come on, like enough, you've been in the kitchen for 40 minutes. How long does it take to make a peanut butter sandwich? Uh, all of that has, it's not just that I'm a nerd to it. It's that I'm, I, I like it. It's the sounds of other people. It's, um, I, w I wouldn't go as far as to say comforted by it, but, uh, but it is, and it maybe comforted by it is the, is yeah, I think the term. It is the term. And I don't, I, and I'm uncomfortable saying it because I don't like to feel, I've never liked to admit that I need comforting because that was part of the mm -hmm. way that I survived my childhood was right. Uh, I, I never was comforted, so I, so I didn't need it, but it is, it's just sort of like, oh yeah, it's the, there's just there are people around and there, and I know who they are. I know what they're doing. I know, uh, you know, it, it's like you look over at the control panel and all the status lights are green and yeah. And so when I'm at my house, there's a. And I'm there by myself. Like, believe you me, I am very comfortable. I My house is very comfortable to me. I can sit in the living room and, uh, and just watch the sun arc across the sky, which is how I have spent so many of my, my days. I really enjoy that. But there's a part of me that now says the part of me that is even a little bit anxious in wondering like, are they okay? I wonder if they're okay right now. 
And I think in the middle of the night, you know, when things go bump in the night here, I'm the one that gets up and, and, uh, I definitely don't go outside in a bathrobe with a sword anymore. Cause I don't have any swords here. I don't even have a bathrobe here, but you know, this morning there was some <laughs> seven o'clock in the morning bumping and I got up and there were some landscapers wandering around and I was like, well, no one else is getting up because they know that I'm going to get up when there's a bump. I'm not worried that a bump is ever going to be anything bad, but I know they'll worry about bumps as soon as I am not here all the time. Um, and I worry about that. I worry about their feelings. You know, I worry about their worry. I mean, all of this is very new to me. Yeah. Right. And most people are thinking like, yeah. And (laughs) because this is very, I think normal for most people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, and it's, um, in a way like, uh, I've had a lot of experiences in, in, in the last few years. Like when I was struggling with anxiety, I had a lot of uh, fresh understanding of how anxiety affects people and how debilitating it can be and how how many people in my life have talked about anxiety for years and I didn't understand what they were talking about and I and I felt like, is this one of those, is this one of those like, um, things where you bring a pet on an airplane, uh, because you have anxiety and it's just a made up thing. And then I had it and I was like, oh no, this is an incredibly debilitating condition. And I can only imagine what it would be like for someone that even had it 2% worse than I do. Mm-hmm. And mine does not seem to be a terrible or chronic case of it. Um, I'm having anxiety related to airplanes, which is just like the most common. I mean, I sat next to my friend, Jesse, one time, Jesse Sykes, the musician who had a terrible fear of airplanes and we were on tour. We were going to somewhere together and she was absolutely having an attack sitting in the seat next to me and And at the time I just couldn't understand what was happening. I was like, Jesse, you know, it's okay. Like calm down. How, you know what? And she was just like in tears. And, and, uh, I, I talked her through takeoff by just kind of explaining what all the sounds were like, okay, now that's the hydraulics. Okay. Now that's the, um, you know, that's the air conditioners coming on. Now that's the sound of the jet spooling up. And I just, you know, and it calmed her down, but I wasn't aware of, I could not understand what was happening to her. And now I do. Mm -hmm. And so every one of these events in recent years has sort of increased my understanding and empathy for people in the world. And I have, I have now this, this new experience of like, oh, I get why, why you would put up with a lot of bullshit from other people in order to have the, uh, in order to, well, in exchange for feeling comforted, 
And what's my, and what's my incentive there? Like what's, what's the trade off for me? And I, I, I mean, it's not like I was a, ever above being comforted. Like I, what, the first time a girl petted my hair, um, I mean, I remember sitting at a table in this sort of squat and a girl reached over and started massaging my hand. And she was a massage therapist, which was one of the 30 jobs that you could have when you were a 24 year old pot dealer. And she was massaging my hand and nobody had ever touched my hand as far as I could tell other mm. than to shake it. Certainly no one had ever touched it so intimately. And we're just sitting at a table in the middle of a party. And she's just massaging my hand absently. You know, it wasn't even that she was trying to seduce me. It was just that she had these skills and she liked me and I was sitting there and, and she started to do this as part of us having a conversation. Now I had never felt more, uh, beloved and just a part of the world. And it was such a simple gesture. And I think, I mean, my daughter has experienced so much human touch mm -hmm. that none of it will be alien to her. There's never going to, I don't think be a moment in her life where she, um, you know, unless it's with her first boyfriend, but where she will feel like I wasn't touched enough. Uh, but for me, like every experience of being, uh, touched in a, in a comforting way. I'm not every experience. I mean, sure. I don't mean to give the impression that my mom wasn't loving and that my dad wasn't loving, but, but the, the intimacy of like my friend Lewis, I was at a, a very small party one time and my friend, we were like baked out of our minds. My friend Lewis reached over while we were talking and he pulled on my earlobes and uh, in a gentle way, you know, like, like massaged, he, he pulled on them though. He wasn't just like turning my lobes over in his, yeah. Uh, is this know. the guy that pulled them and made him pop? Yeah. I pulled him and made him pop. Oh, That's right. God, I don't I like that. that I'm like, before. anytime you tell this story, it's horrible. It was wonderful. I've really no. felt, and I you really said felt that like the last time too. And it's horrible. Yeah. And because it felt like so, it was so human. He had given me an experience that I'd never had. That was, that was just incredibly human. How many times does someone unstick your ear canal from the sides of your head? Fortunately, oh, never, hopefully oh, never only happens. once in my case, because I've never been able mine, to duplicate the experience. ideal. So horrible. The, you know, the question, can people change is something we all ask ourselves all the time and the cynics say no. And the, you know, the optimistic say yes. In my own life, I've watched people close to me change for the better and the worse. And profoundly, mm -hmm. not just, you know, have a bad day, but like go down or come up. But in the main, I have not seen most people change. You know, the people that I've known for 30 years are still themselves. And 
and approach the world the same way and have not at any point said, uh, you know, I, I don't feel or think or act like I once did, even in uh, siloed ways, mm -hmm. you know, like, like I've known some people who lost their religion and so lost their framework. Um, which is a, which is a, a profound change, but it feels external. I mean, it's very internal obviously, but like so much of the change is just, I no longer go to this building and I no longer read aloud from this book as opposed to, you know, somebody really having reflected on, on their core selves and, and decided at some point, like if you believe in a karmic cycle, if you believe that each life you're here to, to address something and to, uh, and then the next time you come back and you've either, you either have to repeat that step or you go on to the next, you know, the number of people who in the course of their own life said, I'm going to make that evolution to the next level here presently, visibly, and not have it be a, you know, not have it be a deathbed reckoning, but have it be a, a thing I can watch transpire. Right. So few, and most people feel uh, most people. It feels like they're here to learn a lesson, and they double down on it, and they spend their lives grinding away at that lesson. Right. Not always bad, you know. Not always a bad lesson. A lot of people spend their lives not grinding, but just feathering their bed. And am I someone capable of change, profound change in this life? Mm 